about your cats and dogs. My cats and dogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I can talk about my cats and dogs. I'm going to the cinema today, later today, with my daughter to see Cats and Dogs Pause Unite, something like Yay. that. Yay! Yeah, a good old <laughs> kind of family film. I mean, I've kind of committed to this and then watched the trailer. Yeah. So jury's out as to just how kind of acceptable it is. It's for the kids. It's, it's for, for the, the kids. kids. It's for the kids. Doing it for the kids. Yeah. And it's only an hour and 24 long. So I'm kind of thinking, you know what? Okay. If it's not great. Snooze. It, well, precisely. It's definitely, it's a great opportunity for a little nap. If you're going to the one with the comfy seats, it's perfect for a snooze. I wouldn't go anywhere Until your legs go up, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought about that. It's a good opportunity for a, for a snooze. What about you? Yeah, I've, I've been flat out, but I have been trying to preserve my evenings to watching something or spending time with my husband. And I've watched a couple. So, actually, last week I watched Le Mans 66, which I've not watched before, with Matt Damon and Christian Bale. That was really good. I love that. Um, I really like that film. I thought it was really good. Yeah, really good. And actually, I'm going to add that to my list because nice I one. think it was that good. Yeah. I also watched The Trial of Chicago 7, got Jason Gordon Levitt, Eddie Redmayne, and Sasha Baron Cohen. And it's very political, but it's a true story about how these riots kicked off in 1968. And it was basically because there were several groups protesting about people being sent to war, to Vietnamese war where they didn't want to go, basically. They were kind of selected by having a birthday on a certain date. And um, there was lots of protests. There was either the Black Panther group. I never knew there was a Black Panther group in the 60s, which was, you know, for black rights. And um, I'm wondering, half wondering, whether the, the Black Panther film, the, the naming, came from that group, actually. But, yeah, basically the people were thrown together because they were told that they were the root of the cause of the riot, when actually it was they were, should have been looking at the police. So there was lots of cover-ups. And that, yeah, it was a good, good film. That's on Netflix. And actually, Jason Gordon-Levitt is doing quite a lot on Netflix at the moment. I'm wondering if he's got a contract for like several films to do with them. I'm, I'd be intrigued to know that. The other one I watched uh, last night was Above Suspicion on Sky Cinema with Amelia Clark. Amelia Clark is, is playing this woman that's uh, married to Johnny Knoxville, the, the, the actor. You know, obviously not in real life. He's playing a character as well and they're into drugs and the brother's into drugs and they live in these uh, mobile homes causing havoc and there's somebody that's renting, should be renting but not paying up, you know, about to rob a bank and, and stuff like that. So the police, the FBI and, and the local police uh, pull in Amelia Clark's character and she gets involved with trying to crack down on, on certain events that are taking place in, in her area, basically. It's conspires to is in the end, uh, she has an affair with the FBI agent. It gets, she gets a bit too obsessive and he ends up killing her. So, and it's a true story. One to watch. It's not the best film in the world, but it's, it's quite an interesting film to watch in the storyline as well. So uh, she's got a very American accent in this film. And I'm wondering whether she's trying to break into more US films doing this, this film. Uh, yeah, just a couple there for you. Nice stuff. I obviously still have to get round to watching the second half of uh, Ben-Hur, which sadly did... <laughs> you still uh, haven't done. <laughs> I know, it's terrible, isn't it? It fell by the wayside again. Is it on your list? That would be no, hilarious. It comes up and it's on your list. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's just too long. There are some films that are just too long for the list. But yeah. no, it, it's going to happen. It's going to happen this week. Yep, yep. I feel like cool. I'm going to tick it off. So. so what did we watch this week then? We had action and adventure, didn't we? So action was Mad Max Fury Road and adventure was Jaws. I suppose it could have been the other way around. So, yeah. I mean, what do you want to go with first? Should we go with uh, a bit of Jaws? Elders first. In honour, I've got, I've got the Jaws t-shirt. <laughs> Quince. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you know what? You know you sang that song, Show Me The Way To Go Home. Yeah. Last week. I had no clue what you're on about. <laughs> <laughs> now I know. Very key part in the movie. Very key part of the movie. But yeah, I had absolutely no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> 
completely forgotten uh, most of the film. But yeah, it was um, released in 1975. I wasn't even born then. And directed by Steven Spielberg. He had a few films before this, but this fell after his, probably one of his biggest films, which is Jewel. And then Jewel's was released. Uh, the writers were Peter Benchley, who also wrote a novel for Jewel's. And the screenplay was by Carl Gottlieb who was also in the film and played Meadows. So we start the film with a beach party on Amity Island and a young couple hit it off and a girl runs off and strips down and jumps into the sea, inviting her partner to join her. However, the gentleman is, is so drunk, he passes out pretty much on the beach and the girl then runs into problems with a great white shark. I like, I like, I like how you said she runs into problems. <laughs> it's, like, it's the most, well, under, yeah. most understated uh, <laughs> of that opening scene. I love it. Yeah, and then that sets the premise really for, for the rest of the film, to be honest. So the police were notified the next day, and Officer Brody, played by Roy Schneider, I said Schneider last week, Schneider, um, and he, I, I felt he was a little bit weak actually, as a, as a policeman, but he tried to get the beach closed down and but Mayor Vaughan, played by Murray Hamilton, was refusing to do that because there was a 4th of July was coming up and he found that was the most happiest time for the people in the area and also brought in quite a lot of revenue as well. So he was, he was reluctant to do that. And then another incident happens and a boy is taken this time. So next they close down the beach, but only for like 24 hours. And they put it out a reward for fishermen um, to, and whoever get, catches the shark gets, I think it was about $3,000. But there was a local experienced shark hunter, Quint, said he would do it for 10K, but was completely ignored at the time. And then further instances uh, happen, and then a, uh, they hire in Matt Hooper, played by Richard Dreyfus. Uh, he's from the Oceanographic Institute. And he can provide more details on the shark and help with the case. He was also able to identify that the first shark that these fishermen had caught was not the actual killer shark for who killed the first victim. And um, they were really actually looking for like a 21 to 25 foot shark, which is a beast of a shark. And then another incident happens. And then this time Quint gets pulled in. Quint, played by Robert Shaw, and they use his boat to go on this hunting mission for this shark with Brody, the policeman, and, and, and Cooper as well. And I will leave it as that because I'm not going to go on because I think I think you can probably guess what's going to happen next. It's just, it's just really a hunting mission. Um, it won three Oscars, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, and Best Original Score. It was nominated for Best Picture, but lost out to one flew over the cuckoo's nest and yeah i'd love to get your thoughts rob i mean do you know what i think to say about this film is i i just adored it but to hear actually that that it lost dance one through the cuckoo's nest i would say fair enough because that's, that's actually a good film as well that's yeah. right up there one through the cuckoo's nest wow what a film to lose out to um so i think i said to said this to you before i can't wait to be able to watch this film with my son He's 11 years old, and I know he's not ready. It's actually a 12A. Um, yeah. I checked on the BBFC. However, I have to say, when I sat down and watched it, that opening sequence is pretty terrifying, way more terrifying than I had remembered. And it's to do with the fact that you don't see the shark, which obviously was a major, major part of Spielberg's whole approach to the film that beach sequence when the girl goes out swimming the guy is drunk and passes out actually on the beach and so you just get this shot it was the same method they use for a lot of these shots in the water where the camera was kind of half below the water and half above the water and mm -hmm. so you're just really mm -hmm. on that sea line and you're seeing this girl and behind I think there's kind of like a a boy or a floating boy I think and that's pretty much it and it's dusk and what's so terrifying is just the fact that, as I say, you don't see the shark, you just see her initially being kind of tugged down. Yeah. And obviously with the music score as well. But more terrifying is when she's dragged. She's literally dragged, almost like a rag doll, left and right. It's, it's as if, I mean, and obviously it was the case, they did actually have her on a pulley. Underneath the water, they had a pulley system and they literally have people pulling her one way and the other to, to, to wow. kind of gauge, to create this sense that 
you know, there's this horrific beast dragging her from side to side. That coupled with her really horrible screaming and extreme kind of close-ups, um, I was really shocked by that because I don't remember... I suppose I remember more about the the other shark attack scenes and I remember, I suppose, more about the hunting mission. And you yeah. forget that the way it opens is really horrific. And in actual fact, this film really was always supposed to be kind of a horror film about, you know, about a giant shark. I mean, that was kind of essentially it. And you can very much see that in that opening scene. I think after that, although you do get, yeah, you do still get the shark attack scenes. I don't think it's ever, for me personally, ever as scary in a strange way as that very opening sequence. And when I watched mm-hmm. that, I thought, wow, um, no, my, my son's yeah. not ready for but that. I felt, sh- I felt, I don't think she screamed loud enough or she, I mean, if I was in s- severe if pain, I was, If I was being I eaten by a giant actually, shark. I probably, wouldn't, <laughs> I probably wouldn't be able to scream because you'd be such pain. I was just kind of thinking, would I be, I was trying to put myself in her position. Would I be screaming really like that? Or would I be really, really, really screaming and and actually couldn't scream because there wouldn't be anything left because I was such an absolute agony. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't much of her left, was there? I think you're delving into territory there of, yes, if your legs underneath the surface are being kind of eaten (laughs) by a giant shark do you even have the ability to scream loudly? I see what you're saying. But that aside, I think anyway, it's just, yeah. it, it kind of was, was really, really impactful. So I, I just loved, I loved that. And, and I suppose I, I actually probably, the, the bits that I thought were most powerful were the bits before you, you see the shark, really. I think once you get to the point where the shark's visible, it turns into, a, for me, a slightly different film. It, it yeah. turns into more of a kind of a, a more of that action adventure film uh, you know it's more char- it's, it's more kind of character driven and you know you get swept up in it for different reasons i thought all of the characters were fantastic i thought they were all really well drawn Roy Shida, as you say, comes across as a relatively weak police officer. We're told that he doesn't particularly like the sea, and yet obviously he's a police officer on an, on an island, which seems quite amusing, although he kind of takes the mick out of himself for that. But it's a very simple setup in a weird way. The whole idea of like there's this risk out there and like two we close the beaches. It kind of had parallels of COVID for me. It's like, well, what yeah, do you Yeah, it do? did. Like, I you know what I mean? Like, thought exactly the same. It's really exactly funny, isn't it? It's like obviously mm. complete. So I thought that was quite interesting. And then I thought, well, you know, put ourselves in our situation now. Yeah, the economy is quite important. If I was in his position... Yeah, maybe I would be uh, in two minds. I felt um, he didn't fight hard enough to get in those beaches closed, to be honest, but he no. was overpowered by the mayor and he was just an idiot. Yeah. Yes, I thought the characters were great. I thought Roy Scheider was great. I thought it was good that kind of you got a sense of his family and, you know, I think his wife gave it that very kind of human element. I think they really provided the human element to it. Robert Shaw as Quint was brilliant. I mean, he is an actor that is in the same bracket as Richard Harris, as Oliver Reed, as in basically drunks, uh, completely larger than life characters. And by all accounts, he was a handful. He deliberately riled up uh, Richard Dreyfus, kind of really? singled him out on set. I think it's because they were both from very different worlds but I mean I think it was all quite deliberate there was a lot of tension apparently on set between those two but there was tension in the film between them all as well precisely so, precisely. So maybe he was trying to get them in that mode I don't know I think you're right that I think there was a bit of both apparently they didn't get on but I think Robert mm. Shaw was experienced enough to know because he, he was a classical actor so he almost came from kind of theatre land even though you wouldn't necessarily know it by watching watching the film and he and he and he made his name actually as one of the Bond villains mm. as well or one of the Bond henchmen. I wonder. I did look back to see if he'd been in any westerns because he he would be perfect to be in a western as well. He's got that kind of persona about him as well. So, yeah, uh, it, yeah. It, I think we both could probably envisage yeah. him in um, the, the Good, the Bad, and the, the Ugly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I know. I know precisely what you mean. I thought, and even his actor, even Robert Shaw. I thought, oh, that sounds like a name. So yeah, kind of era as well. And I thought Richard Dreyfuss was perfect. He was the one there providing, if you like, the comedic element to it. And just the notion of these three guys, three totally different guys on a boat up against this one 
beast. I mean, obviously, it's a very simple idea, but it's it's executed really well. It was interesting that never before had a film ever been filmed on the open ocean. And so, you know, I encourage anyone who's, who's interested, there's a really good making of documentary. I think it's a couple of them on YouTube, and I watched some of those. And they, they basically fell into huge, huge problems filming on the open sea because inevitably everything moving and the weather, and then they had five mechanical sharks, even what they were doing with the mechanical shark was obviously revolutionary. No one had ever done it before. And a lot of the day shooting just simply couldn't happen because the shark didn't work. They gave it the name Bruce. uh, And it was almost, can we film today? Is Bruce working? And that, for me, is the only part of the film that, watching it now, I think it falls down a bit for me. Uh, I mean, of course, it's a fake shark. But, I mean, it really does look like a rubber shark for, for me. I, I, some, yeah, on occasions I would agree with that because it's eyes and everything. But I have to say, most of the time it's pretty realistic. And there were real shots of sharks swimming around the cage and everything like that as well. That's interesting uh, you say. I, I think it's interesting you say that because I, I was curious to know what you thought. I don't know if it was just... Yeah, the scene for me where it didn't look real was when it was hanging off the end of the boat. Right. Okay. And it got not in it, not you know, try couldn't move and 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 stuff. That's the only time where I thought, yeah, that that doesn't look real. (laughs) I think you're okay. I think you're probably right. It it was probably that scene that pushed me over the edge in terms of you know. I suppose I was thinking this is a fantastic film. It's Mm. got everything. Whilst I was watching this, I was thinking, well, how would I score it? Because the only thing was that element of it. You know, this was this was what nineteen seventy five. You say seventy four, seventy five. No, it's seventy five. Yeah, sorry, seventy five. Yeah. So given that and what they were trying to do, it's like one of those things. You, you would forgive it that for everything else that was so great about it. Apparently, the whole issue, the, the the amount of issues they had with the shark, led Spielberg into that decision to not show the shark for quite a lot of the film because. They didn't think they were going to be able to feature it as much. So he began to think, well, how can we get filming off the ground uh, without it? And that's why the decision was made to not see the shark. And in actual fact, that worked really well. But it wasn't just a creative decision. It was a decision that was almost forced upon them. I was really sad to see Quint come to the ending. He did. <laughs> as he pulls down his T-shirt. <laughs> I know. I Quint, quite... just remember his name. I know. I, got, I, was, uh, I, I thought that was really sad because he was probably my favourite character. And I actually think the part of the film for me that where it really, really came together was when those three characters, mm. all very different, all with different agendas, if you like, tensions high, stuck on this boat, when they have that first night and they're all having a drink, you get Quint and you get Hooper kind of comparing shark bite stories uh, showing their scars and you have that amazing monologue from Robert Shaw about the the Indianapolis going down and him being on the ship I mean clearly it's played to the they they are they know they have had a lot to drink and it goes from a very kind of happy friendly atmosphere to quite a serious story which stuns everybody and that Mm. I think brought everyone together it suddenly gave Quint this incredible backstory suddenly you can invest in him more Mm. it brought the three together and I don't know why I think it's because it's those three almost versus the shark you need to believe in them all you need to know as much as you can about them all and you want them as well as you want tension you want to feel like you're behind all of them and that's when it really kicked in for me and then of course as soon as that happens you get the shark ramming the boat so immediately that you get that human element you're straight back into the drama yeah, I mean, that that bit is quite entertaining at the same time because they're showing each other where they've got their wounds from different, either shark or other sea creature um, attacks that, that that they've had on their body parts, basically. And Brody's just watching them, looking at them going, as, as Hooper and Quint are comparing where they've been injured. And then, as, as you say, Quint goes in to talk about the Second World War where he was sunk in a submarine. And um, he was one of the survivors. And then he then saw one by one people being taken off by sharks, basically. And on that, my husband, his grandfather, also off off the coast of, I guess, off the coast of Japan, was in a submarine. And he also sank. And he was one of very few survivors 
as well. So I, I didn't even think that there could be sharks in there, but he was very lucky to survive that submarine and then obviously survive a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember as a little boy having a book about sharks. I became quite obsessed with them. And each species of shark was kind of illustrated with these um, drawings, with these mm. coloured paintings. And there's a scene in Jaws where Brody is with his wife on the kind of veranda and they're having this conversation and she's got a book. Mm-hmm. And it's a shark book. And the, and the uh, drawing that they show, the way that she's looking at a particular page in the book, is exactly the same drawing as it was in my book. Oh, weird. So I was like, yeah, no, really weird. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just... It was interesting hearing about it from Spielberg's point of view, because obviously this was the film that really he'd done, like you say, done Jewel, and that's a really great film to watch. And obviously a lot mm. of the inspiration for Jaws was taken from Jewel, because obviously there are parallels, even though it's a Jaws truck without mm. you know, anyone driving. It's still this kind of beast I something onto yeah. someone down. And I don't think Spielberg directed like Jaws 2, 3, 4, et cetera, et cetera. Um, no. I think he, other directors did that, and they just weren't weren't up to scratch in comparison no, to Jaws either. But the thing is, the whole reason Jaws works is because of the pace at which you eventually see the shark. It works as a film in itself. You know, once you've seen it, like any other mm-hmm. film, you try, even if you just try and replicate the same kind of idea, it just, it just doesn't work. And yeah. obviously they just went down the route, obviously making the set pieces, as it were, more yeah. and more dramatic until it got ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I think there's Jaws of Revenge. Michael Caine took a role in that. Fight. Oh, right. I think it was the very last film, classic scene in that, where the shark leaps out of this water and grabs a helicopter that, that's flying really low. I mean, that's how that's you know you're getting into kind of you know Sharknado territory. And when it got to the the end of it, and then there was Jaws 3D, which I remember it was the first 3D film I ever seen. I remember going to cinema to see that it was completely gimmicky. But this was such a trouble shoot that Steven Spielberg he said he was pretty much had nightmares every night he genuinely thought every single day he'd be fired because he he was basically so aware yeah. that he was out of his depth they were basically writing the script as they went along every night when they got back from filming they would write and literally get ready for the next day's shooting all of the additional stresses of, of filming on the ocean it went two or three months over budget and Interestingly, Richard Dreyfuss was convinced it was going to be awful, but kind of didn't place the blame on Spielberg. I think he placed the blame on Universal in terms of the pressure or the timescale that Mm. they expected him to do this in. And there's an interview before the release of this film where Dreyfuss, on on some TV show, where Dreyfuss is asked, you know, do you think it's going to be successful? He said no. And And he actually explains why it's no good. And then, of course, it came out and did yeah. all the business it did. And it actually, to make, it was $7 million to make and it took $471 million worldwide gross. It was a huge, huge success. You know, you know films that they are, re, or they started to rerun the classic films at the cinemas yeah. to get people in. I would, I would go and see this at the cinema. I mean, I definitely would. Yeah, it was it was really good. Um, there is some sad news though. I mean, I I did look up to see what the kids were doing today and whether they've done any films after Jaws. They hadn't done anything really. Michael Brody, who was played by Chris Ribello, um, unfortunately died at the age of thirty-seven of a heart attack. It was just so sad when I saw that he hadn't done anything after Jaws, but um, he died of you know a young age. Yeah, that is sad. Mm. That is sad. I mean, there's loads of set pieces in this, which I, I just think are, I just think are really well done. I, I thought the scene where the boy um, on the lilo is killed. And again, when you hear about the making of that, they had this machine underneath the uh, lilo to shoot out all this blood. And they asked the boy, he himself had to, because it was kind of in the shallower water, had to dunk himself repeatedly to, to replicate the whole uh, notion of the shark. Yeah. Egg. And apparently... Maybe didn't have fear of going in the water afterwards. Well, he couldn't... Uh, they tried it, but he couldn't do it. He couldn't do mm. it properly. So in actual fact... Um, I mean, it's unbelievable you think about this now. They, they again, they, had, they put a diver underneath him uh, and they had to pull him down because they needed to get him down for a certain yeah. period of time. So this is the kind of stuff that they, they were having to do. But I thought that scene then where the mother 
approaches mm. um, Brody and after you know, she's dressed, dressed in black, in black yeah. and she yeah. pulls up her veil and she slaps him round the yep. face. The, you know, I guess for me, if you take that scene and the scene, you know, the show me the way to go home scene on the boat, I think for me, those are the two almost standout scenes in terms of character and narrative. And yes, it's a film about a giant shark, uh, you know, and, and from that mm. point of view, it's kind of blockbuster, dramatic. But yeah. those two scenes, that one for that one in particular, I thought gave gave it real weight. Yeah, I mean, there was a scene um, when they were on their mission in the boat, the three of them, and there's there's lots of sort of almost jolly music from John Williams, you know, the composer. It almost went into into Indiana Jones style music. Obviously, Indiana Jones comes much later on. But it's it's just a, such a trademark almost for Steven Spielberg to have John Williams' music in it. And you could really, right from the get-go on that, that film, you could hear it. I wonder if it's in Jewel as well. I wonder if John Williams is was pulled into that as well, because that was another big film. But we'll have to look that up. But certainly you could hear the Indiana, Indiana Jones music in, in that piece. And I just thought it sounded really out of context to me. And, yeah. But I'd, what are you going to give it as, as a rating anyway? Um I'm going to give it nine and a half. The only reason it's um, it's not ten, and I don't know if this is a bit harsh, it's just probably because of the odd scene with the shark that just yeah. took me out of the story. I mean, you know, as I say, no fault of the production in terms of what they mm. managed to do with mm. that Tibet. So yeah. I, I I thought it was just fantastic, absolutely. I mean, it was way way better than than I had ever you know imagined watching it again. Yeah. Yeah, no, I and and you know what? I'm going to give it the same. I, I thought I can't give it a ten. There was was occasions where you know, as I mentioned, the John Williams piece, the the shark didn't look real on on one occasion as well. And I just, oh, it's just such a shame in, the, in that he was so weak. The uh, Brody as a policeman, I felt uh, in in the film, but I guess maybe that would happen in real life. But that's part of the story, obviously. And um, yeah, there was just a few minor things that I felt didn't really make it worthy of a 10. So nine and a half, but you know, a pretty good score. Oh I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's right up there. Yeah. I'm, I'm just really glad when you mentioned that film and it came up, I was so excited. Yeah. It's been a while. I mean, I can't remember the last time I gave a nine and a half. I just thought it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Cool. Right. So on to Mad Max Fury Road. And that was yours. It was. It was. So yeah, Mad Max Fury Road. Um, this was released in 2015, directed by George Miller, who also um, directed the original films with Mel Gibson. He also wrote it uh, along with Brendan McCarthy and Nick Latheris. And this film stars Tom Hardy. Charlie's Theron and Nicholas Holt. Although I found out the other day that it's actually Charlie's Theron, as in Heron. Is it? Charlie's oh, Theron. Right. Yeah, I saw. I saw her interviewed, and I actually saw her correcting somebody. It's Theron. Which oh, she gets called Theron a lot, doesn't she? I think she probably just. Gi- I think she probably just gives up. I've never heard of her referred to as Theron, but anyway. Yeah, well, she's South African, isn't she? Um, that's right. So maybe Americans are, you know. Yes. Theron. Okay. No, that's probably absolutely right. Yeah, I was really interested to know just how successful this film was, given that really it's not like a massively narrative-driven film, obviously. And it it won six Oscars, all in the technical categories from film editing, costume design, makeup, sound, et cetera, et cetera. But also it was nominated for Best Motion Picture and Best Director and Best um, Cinematography. So in actual fact, up to 10 Oscars is pretty pretty impressive yeah um, and it, was, it, it lost out to spotlight for best picture and the reverend for best director and i suppose you got some connection there wasn't it because tom hardy was in was in the revenue mm. this was it this was a good little period for for tom hardy so this film is not a prequel or a sequel to the original trilogy in actual fact george miller was quite clear even those original films were never intended to run one after the other he, he was always about completely stripping that away Every film he made, he made because it was something he couldn't do in the previous film. And so they're designed to almost be able to watch out of sequence and be seen as standalone films. And the same is the case for for this one as well. And for people who have watched the original films, it was the films that really launched Mel Gibson. 
this was in the works for a very long time to the point where Mad, uh, Mad Max in this film was due to be played by Mel Gibson, but because it was in development for so, so long, that role went to Tom Hardy. So Tom Hardy plays Max. There's a voiceover right at the beginning, which basically explains that he's, he was once a cop, a road warrior, and is now kind of trekking through this post-apocalyptic Australia. He has this constant haunting, which gives him these flashbacks of his dead wife and child and other people he's failed to save. So, so we, we immediately are in his head as someone who feels that they have baggage with them. And I suppose deep down, he's presented as the, the main protagonist. But interestingly, in this film, he's not really, I would say, the main protagonist. That, that's Charlie's Theron, who plays a character called Furiosa. So we're introduced to Tom Hardy in this post-apocalyptic wasteland where the only currency is water and gasoline. And he's captured by this tyrannical leader, a guy called Immortan Joe, and his whole clan, which are called the War Boys. It's like his army, if you like. Max is caught, he, he's bound and shackled, and they use him as a blood transfusion for this character called Knox, this kind of rookie soldier who, who's desperate to get out on the battlefield and, and fight for his leader. And then when fellow rebel warrior Furiosa goes rogue on this mission to collect a new fuel shipment for Immortan Joe, she works for him, she basically steals his five wives, the breeders, if you like. And obviously, once Immortan Joe realizes, their whole army tries to track Charlie's Theron down and get his wives back. So what you get is the war boys with Max and Nux also in tow because they strap Max to the front of uh, one of these amazing, ridiculous uh, vehicles that feature in this still hooked up with this blood transfusion. Nux is part of this warring party. But circumstances happen that see Max escape with Nux in tow and they team up with Furiosa. Uh, And all three of them basically join forces uh, to to make this final bid for freedom from Immortan Joe. I mean, that's probably all we really need to know. I mean, effectively, it's one continuous action sequence, one continuous chase sequence that starts at the Citadel, the home, if you like, of this Immortan Joe and all his people. And basically, the chase goes all the way across the desert, uh, yeah. and then it comes all the way back. There's very, very little dialogue. I mean, I think Tom Hardy has 52 lines, and that's it. It's not about the dialogue. It was never supposed to be about the dialogue. It was always just supposed to be something that was focused on the visuals. And it's a really kind of grimy, dusty, dirty film. But I suppose the big difference for anyone who's seen the original Mad Max films, the whole post-apocalyptic world or pre-apocalyptic world, as it was, I think, in the first film, was always very bleak. Whereas he wanted to do something different for this. He wanted to make everything, those desert shots, incredibly colourful. And so, yeah, visually, it looks beautiful, non-stop action, real stunts, two great performances, really Charlie Theron being the main, main star in this. And yeah, it's relentless. My only mm. point on it is mm. I saw this in the cinema. Yeah, was I think blo- I did too. Was, yeah, I think was, I did. Was blown away by it, purely for obviously the whole aesthetic of it and just the spectacle of it, not the narrative or the plot. But I must admit, watching it this time round on the smaller screen, I think it lost a bit of that. For, for me anyway, because there wasn't a huge amount of story or narrative, whilst yeah. it was still, for me, amazing, I just found it quite a, quite a different experience. Anyway, I will shut up uh, <laughs> now because I watched this with a, a couple of mates who you know, and we were all very curious to know kind of ah. what, what you made of well, it. We, from a male to female perspective. Well, some think? of us had our predictions, um, so <laughs> I'm curious to know. Is that Sarah's going to hate that? <laughs> Not necessarily, not necessarily. No, I mean, mean, calling it grimy and dusty film, I would completely agree with that. And actually it was shot in uh, the Namin Desert and a lot of the filming was in Cape Town. And I was actually, uh, I watched it at the cinema as well. And actually I preferred watching it the second time around. I think I watched it more closely the second time. I hadn't, I had seen a Mad Max with Mel Gibson before. 
but I couldn't remember much about it before either. But I know that the vehicles in this was amazing. I mean, I Incredible. did industrial design. I'm I'm a, I'm a gadget engineering kind of junkie, really. And it, it's a it's a real treat for engineers, car mechanics, and petrol absolutely. Makers, I would say. Yeah, Post, this, this, totally. this film. the vehicle creations were just amazing and very clever cars on top of cars to form trucks and you know and and they were fixing trucks and cars as they were driving them because they were in this constant chase in, in the, yeah that one so I, I you know i couldn't think of anyone else to play imperator ferosa than charlie's theron uh, getting the surname right this time i guess if it was back in mad max series when mel gibson was playing i, I guess gina davis would have been a good candidate to play this character then and um, very similar characters i would say charlie's theron and and gina davis in, in in personalities i would say but yeah she i couldn't think of anyone else uh, to play that and and i know tom hardy is in 2000 15 claimed that he's he's now signed up for three more Mad Max movies and great I think he was he was a perfect fit also he didn't really say much during the film it was all action all action packed lots of fighting and oh, I felt really I don't know how they shot the scene where he was on front of this car chasing this truck with that, with that mask on. Yeah, yeah with that muzzle on I don't know how they shot that but it was uh I would not want to be on the front of that car at that speed and all that dust in your face and, and everything. He might have done a little bit of it, probably in slow motion, but yeah, that was that was something. And oh, my favourite, I have to say, is the guitarist in front of the... Yeah, uh, I know, it's amazing. ...flame shooting guitarist, which is apparently an Australian artist, uh, Sean Hope, Iota is his, is his stage name. That was impressive. It's like when you go out for battles in the olden days, you would have this musician sort of drums trying to motivate the the soldiers. So in this case, it was a flame shooting guitarist and and drummers as well on this vehicle. And it was and he played for night and day. It was amazing. I, lo- I love that. It just gave something extra special to it as well. Yeah, I couldn't believe 80% of these shots were practical effects, they call it, which means that the stuntmen were involved and very little CG. Yeah, I mean, the, the music was very strong as well. Um, I guess it was all very rocky, really. It was it was just really for those complete metal heads, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> as I said, I- petrol heads and... Uh, and I, I really did enjoy watching it the second time round. And great to see Zoe Kravitz as well, who's Lenny Kravitz's daughter. She probably hates being referred to as, as Lenny Kravitz's daughter. But she's been doing quite a lot, really, in films. Um, she was in the Divergent series and been in, in lots of other stuff as well. And uh, she's really showing, you know, making a name for herself in the, in the uh, film industry, which is great. She was one of the, the girls that was, I don't know whether they were all pregnant with the, the leader's child or whether one of them was just pregnant. I know there was two of them pregnant, weren't there? I don't know whether she was one of them that was pregnant as well. But it just was a bit grim, really, to think about this guy we had this almost like a harem of women that he was just impregnating just to try and create a pure blood version of himself really because his other sons had had some sort of defect and himself he had breathing problems and and defects he was trying to create something that could rule the land that wasn't going to have any issues a bit like a you know equivalent of what Charlie Theron's character and and, and Tom Hardy's characters were like um, you know what they they were like as human beings apparently there was three months worth of film editing to do the editor was Margaret Stixall and apparently was George Miller the director's wife and she had to go through three months of film film footage that she had to edit down basically rob i know you you say it takes quite sometimes quite a while to edit down our our podcasts (laughs) three months three months worth of people just talking and action to try and get it down to how long was it two hours just over two hours the film quite incredible really when you think about it on on the editing front for what was really mm. interesting is that um, she had never edited a like a live action film with like humans in it. She, she'd only ever done, I think she did Happy Feet. But this uh, effectively, right. this was her first you know live feature edited film, and she won yeah. an Oscar, which I think is amazing in itself. And the reason why George Miller picked his wife to do it, you know, she said, "Why do you want me to do it?" Because she was a woman, she thought they would get something different from the editing that they would do with a male editor who'd Mm. done all the other previous films. And he was conscious he wanted to try and create a different aesthetic. He pulled that off in so much as it felt, still felt very unique, which I thought was quite interesting. You know, you talk about 
Charlie's Theron, she reminded me a little bit. I mean, I suppose it's an easy comparison to make in terms of such a powerful female lead, really. She reminded me a bit of Ripley in so much as just how impactful yes. her performance yeah. was. You know, and, and actually, in terms of the human story behind both of the two characters, it was her. When, when there were those breaks and they delivered kind of some exposition in terms of the storyline, you know, significantly when she gets to where she thinks is her homeland uh, and she discovers this beautiful green, mm. you know, lush world that she mm. finally kind of found no longer exists, that, that, that was pretty effective in so much as, you know, it gave you a bit of an insight into her character. I thought they, as a, as a kind of a duo, for, just purely from, you know, hardcore action, Hardy and uh, Theron were great. They were perfect, yeah. And Theron, of course, is making a name for herself, being able to be such a versatile uh, actor and can do this kind of thing. Mm. I thought, if you think back to Mel Gibson in his day, you know, you you remember Mel Gibson in so many roles with those kind of, that, that slightly unhinged, darting eyes that kind of yep. maddening look and, and hardy yep. i thought pulled that off i don't know whether that was a nod to the original character but hardy yeah, was all, hardy yeah. was all about those quick little those, those little stares his eyes darting around as if he's constantly trying to figure out what to do next or yep. deal with these incredible uh, action sequences or dangerous situations he's in i thought that worked really well and also as well as everything being so almost jaw-dropping you know watching like you say you're watching these sequences whilst they're entertaining and obviously incredibly edge of your seat stuff i thought it wasn't afraid also to throw in some really quite gruesome stuff that birth sequence for example is actually quite harrowing in a, in, a, in a way and they you know although you don't see it just the fact that you know it's the thud of the baby after it's... That's right. Out. And, it, you know, I was a bit like, whoa. And then there was also the sequence where when Immortal Joe kind of does meet his maker, shall we say. You know, I mean, his face is effectively ripped off. That was a, you know, amongst all of the other mm. action mm. that you kind of start to get mm. used to, there were those kind of moments where you were, whoa. So I, I thought it always... It's almost like just when you thought... And this was a comment made by one of the one of the guys I was watching with, and I think it was a really good point. Um that you keep almost thinking you're, you're watching the finale or the climax of the film, such as the amazing crescendos of these action sequences. And then really there's a lala, then you get another one, another one, another one. And also another point that was made by another one of the guys who's watching, I thought this was really interesting. We, we did watch a making of after this. You can find loads of them on YouTube where it really delves into all these action sequences. And as you say, apart from a bit of comping that you do see the odd element, yes, the vast majority is all about the stunts. And it's, it's an amazing, it's amazing to see what they did, especially with the polecats. Incredible! No, that was clever. Yeah, that was absolutely. Really... I mean, oh. it, it was almost, and I think it has this feel of this. I, I think in a it's weird, like a, yeah, like a circus almost. Yes. As well, well it? one of the, as I say, so the Salai came up in conversation yeah. whilst we were yeah. watching the film, and they actually got stunt people in from Cirque du Soleil to, mm-hmm. to basically advise on how to kind of execute the, this idea. The whole film just mm-hmm. almost felt like a kind of a cinematic equivalent of like some thrash metal opera. Yeah. You know, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it just yeah. had that, it yeah. had that feel to it. Um, yeah, I, as I say, I, I just, it's one of those things often when you watch a film and then you, and I think I've said this before, you find out more about how it was made it gives you real appreciation for just how good it is. And mm. I think if you watch this film and you're assuming, as one of the guys did assume, and you would, you would, because it's the way a lot of cinema is done these days, that most of it is CGI, it doesn't have the same impact when you actually learn that so much of it is real. Because it's so visceral, that's when you start thinking, wow, yeah. it's visceral, because they did all this stuff. Yeah, and I think I'm wondering whether that's why the budget was so high. I mean, $150 million to make, which is a, a huge budget. You know, I was talking about other films previously and, and other films, and they're usually about up to $30 million quite often. But it only pretty much just doubled that amount in World War Grace. It got $375 million, which wasn't... It was good, but not a huge success, I would say, considering the amount of money that they spent on it. But I reckon that's purely spent on the, the amount of building work they had to do for, for the vehicles and, and the, the structure designs that they did for the uh, Citadel, did you say? And then also for the time that it took. I mean, there's a lot of filming, obviously three months worth. Some, some films get done quite 
faster than that. They're in the same location. And the fact that they have so many actors involved, there wasn't there was less CG. Maybe CG does cut the cost down. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think Nicholas Holt was he played the character really, really his character really, really well. And he had he, there was a bit of empathy within his character. He was completely mad madman at the start and and wanted to be praised for his doing some great work. And then all of a sudden he re- realizes he he'd kind of been defeated really. And turned out to be the hero at the end of the day, really, and um, and bonded with one of the uh, the women that the leader was trying to impregnate. He was he was he was a good guy, really. At the yeah. End of the day. But they've got some interesting names, like Zoe Kravitz. Um, name was called Toast the Knowing. But interesting <laughs> names for some. There was there was a lot of randomness about this film, and yeah, that's one of the things I was, liked about it. Yeah, I mean, some of the characters they're almost like something out of. You know, even though they're mm. human, they're humans. Mm. It's like something out of Star Wars. I felt at times yeah. it was, just... and also Wizard of Oz as well came yes. to mind. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. you're absolutely right. Absolutely yeah. right. I, I think, I mean, I think when I said last week, oh, it's a long film. I think it's because there's almost two stages of the film. There's a big chase, and they get to this point where they meet this group of women, and then they kind of go back. They, why would you go back towards the chasing group? They go back and and. The, that's why you kind of think there's two parts to see the film in some in some respects. And maybe the second part was a little bit slower than the first part, I would say. But I actually liked it. I, I'm going to give it an eight and a half out of ten. I think um, it's got a lot going for it. It's got a lot of Oscars as well. So it is a critic's choice, I would say. Yeah, I actually quite enjoyed it watching the second time round. Yeah, well, I would say that for me... Second time round, and I think it's that whole thing about, you know, once they get all the way there, they go all the way back. I think it could have lost a bit. I think it was, for me, it was a little bit too long. I didn't feel that at the cinema, interestingly, but I did feel it this time round. There were some elements of it that you did just have to kind of accept and suspend your disbelief. I mean, you know, it does just feel like a, you know, a kind of a graphic novel on screen. You know, Miller apparently... You know, he had like three and a half thousand storyboard panels made before they even started writing a script. It was incredibly methodical uh, and, and it kind of very much feels like that. I mean, for example, you know, for, for, for somewhere where gasoline is um, at a premium and people are scavenging around, like there was a lot of gasoline that people seem to be able to seem to have in these vehicles that never really seem to just run out of petrol, shall we say. But I would say all of those things are minor points because it's just such a incredible barrage you know just insanely loud and lavish and just cranked up action that just looks stunning i mean it's just yeah. beautiful so i think i will score this slightly higher and i'm going to give this I think I'm going to give this eight and a half too. I thought it was going to be higher, and I wonder whether it's purely just because I watched it on the small screen and lost a lot of it. Um, but I, I did really, I still really, really enjoyed it, and mm. it's going to be great to see what they do with the following films. It's going to be a Furiosa yeah. spin-off, um, although yeah. Theron's not going to be in it, uh, but but uh, Hardy's signed up. So yeah, I think it's going to be great to see where they take it. Yeah, you know when you go to the beach. And then you go back to your chalet after you've been at the beach in the day with all, you know, pour out a ton of sand. Can you imagine what it must have been like <laughs> being on set and then going back to your, your trailer or your hotel room? You must have been, they must have got so sick of just seeing sand all the time. Even there were some scenes where they had, their face was in the sand. Inhaling all that dust and stuff must have been a nightmare. To well, you me. can't help but think that, you know, it would have done quite a lot of damage to your health being on that set. I mean, obviously, yeah. they obviously, the dust was a huge, be, huge thing that they had to contend yeah. with. But yeah. I imagine it can't have been a great environment to work in for that long. Not if you're an asthmatic, no. <laughs> like me. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely take your puffer, is what yes, I would say. Yes, yeah, bring your puffer. <laughs> anyway, you don't have to watch Have a Puffer for watching the film anyway, but it just made me think about it. Anyway, on to, uh, on to our choices for this week. So we have Horror, Action and Adventure are out. Do you want to go first? What's it going to be? Russell, bad Russell, boys, Russell, bad Russell. Boys, what's it going to be? It's not going to be Bad Boys, I'll tell you that right now. Okay. And the winner is Crime. Crime. I have... Got that tune in my head now. You put the bad, bad boys, boys theme in my bad head. Boys. It's what you're going to do, isn't it? 
What you gonna do? What you do? gonna do when they come for you, bad boys, bad boys? Anyway, crime. I've got eighteen. Eighteen. I will go for. I'll go for number ten. Number ten is Point Break. We're nineteen ninety-one hey. with Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves. Well, it's on my list as well, so I will scrub it yeah. off. Uh, oh, fantastic. So, yeah, classic. So this is about an FBI agent who goes undercover to catch a gang of surfers who may be bank robbers. Keanu Reeves in full pomp with... The Swayze. With the Swayze. Ah, it's brilliant, this. It's so entertaining. It's rental buy or on Rakuten, Amazon or YouTube. It's not available on many channels at the moment. My name is Johnny Utah. Who cares? There's so many lines in this. <laughs> you remember you remember lines very well. Like last week was Show Me the Way to Go Home. I had no clue what that was. Well that was week, just a I, song. I can't remember that I can't remember any of these. It's like uh, uh, it's like death on a stick out there, mate. There's a classic <laughs> line at the end of this of an Ameri- of an American trying to do an Australian accent on Bell Beach right at the end. It's just, if, if I tell you now, it'll stick out like a sore thumb. Brilliant. Can't <laughs> oh. wait for this one. Good, good. Right. Next. For me, it's musical. Musical. Musical or music. Okay. Got any left? Wow. I need to, up- <laughs> I need to, update-, I need to update this list. <laughs> I've only got a three on here. Do I need to pick another one? No, it's fine. Okay. I think, you know, there's three. They're all worth There's three. Watching, okay, I think. three. I'm going for your number one. Ah, it's Walk the Line. Oh, right. Brilliant one. Which yeah. is, yeah, I mean... Johnny Cash, isn't it? That's right. Whacking Phoenix again. Mm. Um, yeah. Ring of Fire. Room of Fire. Room of Fire. This with is obviously the Johnny Cash biopic with Whacking Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon. Two yep. powerhouse performances. I think she was nominated or actually got an Oscar for this. I mean, yeah. they both must have at least been nominated. Streaming on Now TV and Sky Go, and you can rent or buy on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, Sky Store, Rakuten, and TV and YouTube. Lovely, jubbly. Yeah, ones I haven't seen for a while, actually, so that's good. Two belters. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Rob. Good week. Lots of factoids. That's right, that's right. Sorry, I was a bit rambly today, especially no. when it came to Mad Max. I'm actually off to the cinema this afternoon to see, wait for it, this is, you know, Oscar-worthy film, Cats and Dogs, Paws Unite. Um, <laughs> so I did mention it at the top of the uh, podcast. So I will report back on that one uh, next well, week. How do you know? It might might be up for a nomination or two. Absolutely. I can't, They're not I... even out for this year, are they? No, I can't go into this film with any prejudice. It's not really for me. It's not for my audience. I need to give it a chance. Yeah, enjoy the snooze. I'm sure it will be perfect. (laughs) Perfect. Like it. Very good. (laughs) Anyway, on that note, thank you very much, listeners, and we will catch you next week. Lovely. See you then. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.